Let's turn to the book of Colossians. Uh, Again, we are at Palm Sunday, but we are familiar with the story, and we just taught through the Gospel of Mark where we looked at Palm Sunday. And so we're going to transition from the book of Titus to the book of Colossians. And that's where we're headed. And uh, hopefully you've had an opportunity to interact with the book of Colossians. It's one of the richest books in the New Testament. And the themes of the book are... If you're a note taker, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. If you're a note taker, write that down. The grand themes of Colossians are the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. As we now have an opportunity to turn to it and learn about the book of Colossians, one of the grand books of the New Testament. It really exalts Jesus Christ, I think, like no other letter in the New Testament, save the Gospel of John, which is a gospel. But we are so grateful, Lord, that it shows the exalted status of Christ. Lord, we know that many times uh, people attack who you are. They deny your deity or deny your sufficiency. But this book is going to answer a lot of questions about that. And I believe it's going to cause us, many of us to soar to new heights in our view of Christ. And so, Lord, it is our prayer that you would add and take away from what I've prepared, that you'd show us glorious things from your word as we do a message called the hope laid up for us in heaven. Jesus, you are in heaven. You're at the right hand of the Father. And thank you that you ever lived to intercede for your people. Thank you that you're the forerunner. You blazed the trail in your own blood. And thank you that that hope of your presence in heaven and your work in our lives today and the future to come is the anchor of our souls. As we talk about that hope this morning, may you bless the study of your word and may you bless us. Let us not just read the word, let it read us, Father. Let it read us. Let it be written deep in our hearts that we might act upon it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, the book of Colossians, the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is the first message. And uh, as we look at the book of Colossians, Colossians is going to answer a lot of questions about the person of Christ. Colossians has been called the twin epistle to the Ephesians. When I say epistle, I just simply mean letter. And it has, some scholars say, as many as 78 verses in common with the book of Ephesians. So if you've enjoyed studying the book of Ephesians, which is a great book, you'll enjoy studying Colossians as well. The difference between Colossians and Ephesians, although called twin epistles, is the focus of the book. In Ephesians, the focus of the book is the church, the body of Christ, although Christ is also in the book. And in Colossians, the focus is the head of the body, Jesus Christ himself, his identity, his supremacy and sufficiency. What was happening in the ancient world is like what happens today. Jesus Christ and his person was being attacked. In much of the world, for the history of mankind, there's not been atheism dominating the landscape. Man has been very religious. In fact, the major religions of the world acknowledge a historical Jesus Christ. They don't deny his historicity. But what they deny is his claims that he's God, that he claims to be the singular way to the Father, that he's the creator, etc. And this is very important. The Gospel of John, Jesus himself said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever 
believes in him will not perish. So the Bible calls upon us to believe Christ for who he is. In John 8, 24, Jesus said to the religious leadership, unless you believe that I am, going back to Exodus 3, 14, and the voice of the burning bush, you will die in your sins. What you believe about Jesus Christ is extremely important. In fact, I would say, according to the New Testament documents, your soul is on the line what you believe about him. If you're wrong about Christ, you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. Now, what was happening in the ancient world is happening today. There is a demotion of Christ. There are many people who say Christ is not God and he's not the singular way to God, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is coming to the Father except through me. These are very exclusive claims. These are very radical claims. And the question is, are they true claims? And that, I suppose, is what people are wrestling with all the time. Easter brings about its slew of articles, Time Magazine, the History Channel, all are commenting on the person of Christ. They're commenting on who they think he is, the historical Jesus. Are the manuscript documents actually accurate? Can they be trusted? Is there truly a heaven? Jesus said there's a heaven. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said, if it weren't true, if there wasn't a heaven, I would have told you. But there is a heaven, and it's impossible for God to lie. So we know there's a heaven, and we know there's a hell. The grand themes of this uh, New Testament document, as I mentioned, are all around Christ and his sufficiency. If you look at chapter 2, just as we do a little bit of an introduction before we get into the verses, look at verse 9. It says, in him, Colossians 2.9, in Christ is all the fullness of deity which dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.10, and in him you, this applies to us as well, have been made complete. His sufficiency as God in human flesh makes you complete. You are complete in Christ. Do you feel incomplete? Well, it's the human dilemma. People are looking for peace everywhere. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about a search for peace and meaning in wine, women's song, building programs, intellect, the writing and reading of books, you name it. And Solomon said, life is vanity. If you're disconnected from God, and it makes sense, if you're disconnected from your creator, you're going to experience futility. But in Christ, you are sufficient. You can have a full life when you meet your creator and come to know his redemption, which he paid at the cross. This has been called a prison epistle because Paul wrote this from his first Roman imprisonment. Paul was in prison at least twice that we know of. His first Roman imprisonment, he, certain, he seemed to have a certain amount of freedom. This is mentioned at, in Acts 28 at the end of the book of Acts. It says he was in a two-year imprisonment and he had, he, part of that time he was under house arrest. He had his own rented quarters and people were coming to him and those people were learning about Jesus Christ. During that two-year period of time, as Paul was in some form of Roman imprisonment, he wrote four letters. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Four letters in his first Roman imprisonment. In his second Roman imprisonment, as he's awaiting death under Caesar Nero, around uh, AD 68 is when he dies, he writes the book of 2 Timothy. So this is what's called his first Roman imprisonment. Four prison letters are written, and they are very well-known letters. And it, it amazes me that Paul could write Colossians from a prison experience about the exalted Christ, about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, even while he was in prison. 
prison, which just goes to show you that it doesn't really matter what your life circumstances are. In fact, sometimes we can see the exalted nature of Christ the most when we are at our lowest. Would you agree? Sometimes we go through trials and difficulties, and those are the times when we find ourselves crying out to the true God and saying, God, if you're out there, if there is a true God out there, please save me. Please show me who you are. And God answers prayers like that. He sometimes meets us in the most desperate moments of our lives. And here's Paul generating letters from a prison experience. We recently, uh, many of us watched the Insanity of God movie, and it was really about a missionary couple that went all over the world and this, this man after doing missions and losing a son who got sick because of their work on the mission field and ended up going to heaven interviewed a bunch of people who were persecuted for the Christian faith and one man had been in prison for many years I think it was 16, 17 years just for his faith at one point they tried to act like they, they were torturing and killing his wife they brought a woman in they turned her face away he thought it was his wife and, and basically they tortured her and then they they allowed him to to hear her screams and then they dragged her lifeless body past his cell just to spite him trying to break him every morning he would wake up and sing a love song to Jesus in the middle of the prison the prisoners heard his song and many of them you know were spewing hatred toward him and they they didn't like this man but every morning he would wake up and sing a love song to Jesus and one day the guards came and they beat him and they said we're going to go hang you on the gallows below and they dragged him out of the cell and they were taking him and the other prisoners saw what was happening and all the prisoners uh, stood up in their cells and they began to sing the song that he sang every morning simultaneously as one choir and so overwhelmed the guards that they turned around and took the man and put him back in his cell they didn't kill him that day where Christ is there's always hope you can live life with endless hope or you can end up with a hopeless end And you get to choose that based upon what you do with the one who is our hope. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is our hope. He has become my hope, and I pray that he is your hope as well. The author of the Colossian letter is the Apostle Paul, and he writes to the church located at Colossae. You might ask, where is Colossae, and what's the deal with this city? Well, Colossae was an ancient city in what's called a triad of cities around an area called the Lycus River. And the Lycus River Valley was well known at that time and there were a triad of cities. They actually formed somewhat of a triangle and the three cities were Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae. Scholars and historians say that the three cities were basically visible from uh, every direction. So one city could see the other. They were within eyeshot of each other. You You had Laodicea, you had Heropolis, and you had Colossae. Now in the book of Revelation in chapters two and three, seven churches are addressed, one of which is Laodicea. Laodicea was known as, do you remember Bible students? The lukewarm church. They're known as lukewarm Laodicea. And when Jesus addresses these churches in Revelation 2 and 3 through John, he addresses kind of the geography of the land and ties it to the behavior patterns of these churches. Now, Laodicea was lukewarm. They had to pipe in water through kind of a stone piping system. And by the time the water got to them, it was tepid. And Jesus said, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And I'm about to what? Spit Spit you out of my mouth. 
It was a warning. I don't think it meant that the lukewarm Laodicean church was beyond repair, but I think it was a warning that Jesus was trying to, he said, I wish you were either hot or cold. Now, in the triad of cities, one of the cities about 12 miles to the north was Colossae. Colossae was at the base of Mount Cadmus, and Colossae was known for these cold waters that ran down through it. So when, I, when Jesus says, I wish that you were either cold or hot, he's probably referring to the cold waters of Colossae, cold, refreshing on a hot day. Heropolis was known for hot springs. There were these hot springs. People would come from all different regions, and they would come into these hot springs, and if you've ever been in a jacuzzi or hot springs, oh, ho, 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 you know how good it feels on your body. It could be very medicinal. Uh, you can sit in the jacuzzi with the jet hitting your bag, oh, yeah, right? Hot springs can be good. They're medicinal, cold water, refreshing. But Laodicea was lukewarm. And this, these were the three cities around there. And Colossae was also known for, there were these incrustations that came. There was chalky water. And sometimes they formed almost like stone uh, shrouds over certain er, uh, areas of the land. But it was known for wool. And there, there would be sheep and shepherds out there and pasture land. And there was a whole uh, thriving wool industry. And Paul writes to the church at Colossae. Colossae would now be located in the western part of Turkey. So Asia Minor, what we know and we hear about Asia Minor in the Bible, was considered proconsular Asia Minor. You say, what does that mean? It means that that's what the Romans called the area. It's not the Asia that we know. Asia Minor was an area of now considered modern-day Turkey, and there was something like, you know, if you add in Colossae and other churches, there are something like 10 churches in this area. Those churches are not there anymore. But when they were addressed, they were obviously uh, vital churches of the day. Uh, Colossae was about 100 miles from Ephesus, and this is the church that Paul addresses. How was the church planted, you might ask? Well, it appears that as Paul did a three-year ministry in Ephesus, he was there, Acts chapter 19 records this, and he, he taught for uh, two years in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul was in Ephesus. He kind of set up shop, almost did like a miniature Bible college. People were getting saved, and they were being discipled in this Bible college. And as they went out from the school of Tyrannus having been taught by the Apostle Paul, they were going back to their home regions. A man named Epaphras went back to the area of Colossae, this is what we surmise from the evidence we have, and began to share the gospel with people. And it looks like he became the pastor of this church. His name is Epaphras. So Epaphras at some point goes to the Apostle Paul, probably a not probably, in his Roman imprisonment, and he begins to share information about how the Colossian church is doing. Warren Wiersbe writes of the Colossian church that all kinds of philosophies uh, mingled in this cosmopolitan area because there was an east-west trade route right where Colossae was. Religious hucksters abounded in the area. There was also a Jewish colony in Colossae, and there was a constant influx of new ideas and doctrines from the east. It was fertile ground for religious speculations and heresies. This uh, area was also known for major earthquakes. In fact, around the time that Paul wrote, around AD 60 or 61, there was a major earthquake in this area. Laodicea was able to rebuild without Roman help or money, but the area got devastated time and time again by earthquakes. 
One of the, the things that scholars will see as you read on, they will say as uh, you read introductions about the Colossian letter is there was something called the Colossian heresy. And it had these weird combinations of Jewish mysticism and Greek philosophy and dualism and it came out in different teachings that they taught. Here's an example. They apparently were telling people you've got to be circumcised to be saved. Look at Colossians 2 verse 11. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised, Colossians 2.11, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This was a largely Gentile church, but as happened in the Galatian letter, there were Jewish Christians going in there, or apparently well-meaning, and they were saying you have to be circumcised to be saved, even as a Gentile. Paul was saying, no, the circumcision that you experienced was a circumcision without hands. It was a spiritual one, not a physical one. We are the true circumcision who are circumcised and changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can read Philippians 3, 2, and 3. If you skip ahead for a second to verse 16, there are people judging one another and it seems to have a Jewish bent to it. Uh, 2.16, therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Seem, seems to have a kosher aspect in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. There were people who were judging one another and apparently saying you can't be close to God unless you honor the festivals and unless you honor the new moons, unless you keep certain dietary laws. And Paul says don't let anybody judge you that way. If you're a Gentile believer, a non-Jewish believer, you, Christ is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is sufficient, that his payment made in the cross has made you complete and full in Christ? That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what Paul was having to deal with as he addressed this Colossian heresy. Uh, another thing that they taught in this Colossian heresy is they began to demote Christ because they said uh, God, uh, they believed that this, this was a Greek thought and it came really all the way back from Socrates. They believed that all matter was evil. This, this was their conclusion. So they said that God could not have made the physical world because all matter is evil and God couldn't touch that stuff. So what they taught was a series of intermediaries between God and the last God. And what they called these is emanations from God. So they said there's the ultimate God out there somewhere and emanations that flow down from him, almost like a ladder of smaller gods. And the, so they said that the true God can't touch matter. Matter is evil. We'll get to that in a second. So there must be in between lesser gods that go down a list and they go down and they're so far away from God that finally one of those lesser gods made the world and everything in it. Well, Paul debunks that in Colossians 1.16. Take a look. It says, For by Christ, by him, Christ is the subject. How many things were created? All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things. Here's his supremacy, one of the themes of the book. And in him all things do what? Hold together. Not only did Jesus make the universe, he holds it together. And he holds me together. And all God's people said, oh, to be in Christ, to have his power manifest in a human life is one of the great privileges for humanity. 
And Jesus Christ is the creator. There's no series of emanations or lesser gods. There's only one true God. God says, I know of no other gods. There were no gods formed before me or after me. I am it. Cornered the market on deity, baby. I added the baby. That's the deal. This is Jesus Christ, creator and sustainer of the universe. And this Jesus is the one who became human and died on the cross. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. And he, Jesus, has now reconciled you, Christian, in his, what? Fleshly body. Now, there, the Gnostics, this, this, this heresy, this Colossian heresy that scholars call it, took on forms of what's called Gnosticism. You say, what's Gnosticism, Pastor Michael? All these big words. The Gnostics come from a Greek word called gnosis or gnosis. It simply means to know. They were the people in the know. So they had secret handshakes and passwords and even underpants. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's true of modern cults. You have to wear the right undergarments to be in the club. I'm not joking. And you have to know the passwords and the phrases and the way to climb the ladder to this God because you must achieve your way through all these lesser gods and intermediaries. But the Bible says through Paul, there is one God and one mediator between man and God. There's not a series. There's not a ladder. There's one. One go-between. Aren't you glad? Praise God. And so, but the, the Colossian heresy said, oh no, matter's evil, so there can't be an incarnation. God could not have become human. In fact, we don't even believe God made the world. So they denied what we call the incarnation, that Jesus was incarnate. What's that mean? That he became flesh. And the Gnostics taught that Jesus was a phantom. He looked physical, but he really wasn't physical. He just appeared that way. And in the Gnostic romance books, they said when Jesus walked, he didn't leave footprints. He was just a phantom of some sort. That's a lie. He was born in Bethlehem, fully human, right? Perfect, but in a human body. That shows you that not all matter is evil. Jesus Christ is God and became flesh, God with us. Amen? So here's what Paul's dealing with, a heresy that denies uh, the incarnation and denies the, that God is the creator or that Jesus is the creator. They said all matter is evil. But remember when God made the world and everything in it, in the book of Genesis, what did he say? He made something and he said, it is, what? He didn't say it's evil. He said, what? It is good. It is good. It is good. The one time he said it's not good is it's not good for man to what? To be alone. But he said it's good. And Adam himself was made out of what? The dust of the ground, out of matter. And God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And Adam was a perfect being before the fall. Not all matter is evil. That's ridiculous. But some of the people in the church picking up Greek ideas from Greek philosophy and what's called Greek dualism began to deny the biblical accounts and the identity of Jesus. And this still happens today. People get an idea. They presuppose the idea. They, it's called a presuppositional viewpoint. They, they put it on the text and let it, instead of letting the text dictate what's true, they presuppose an idea and say, well, that doesn't square up with this. And they become the judge of the Bible rather than the word of God becoming the judge of all truth and ideas. Amen? Amen. 
So this is what happens. This is what Paul is dealing with. And so here's how people responded. They imbibed or embraced this idea that all matter is evil. And there were two uh, uh, responses in the way people lived. The first response was called asceticism. Sorry for all the big words. But asceticism meant that I'm going to beat up my body I'm going to beat it into submission because all matter is evil. So what I have to do is really, I have to abuse myself, abuse my body. And there were, in the ancient world, there were literally these people called flagellists. The flagellum was the Roman whip that had the bone and, and so forth on it. And that's what they whipped Jesus with. And they would walk around, get this, they were also known as monastics and some monks did this. And they would walk around and they would whip themselves. How you doing, Fred? Hold on a minute. Psh, 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 psh. Better now, man. They would walk around whipping themselves, abusing their bodies. And some of the well-meaning, even uh, early members of the church took this to such an extent that when they felt they were being tempted, sometimes they would just dive into a thorn bush. I'm feeling temptation right now. Hold on a minute. I'll see you guys in a few. Oh, oh. And, and now in other religious movements, there are people in certain religious movements in the East that sleep on a bed of nails. There are people who do pilgrimages on their knees until their knees bleed. They will, and, and why do they do this? Because they're trying to appease the God. Look how sincere I am. You're like, Really? Now check this out. Here's where Paul says in Colossians 2, look at verse 20. These people say things like this. Do not handle, two, I'm sorry, 2.21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are what? Of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know, people in the early church took this so far that some people emasculated themselves in the early church, thinking that that would help them avoid temptation. Some people went and lived in a monastery, but all of this, forgetting what the central problem is, the central problem is right here, folks. It's the heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things or desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not severe treatment of your body that's going to get you right with God. It's that you are born again. Amen? To a living hope. You must experience the power and the grace of God to be saved. You don't need to just be band-aided. You need to be renovated. You need to be regenerated of the Holy Spirit. Now, the opposite side of this was people responded, well, you know what? If all matter is evil and the body's wicked and it's unredeemable, then the flip side, the, the opposite pole was what's called antinomianism. So there's, there's another one, Pastor Michael. Antinomianism is simply this. No, namas in Greek means law. Anti means no. So they said no law. So here's the deal. If the body's unredeemable and all matter's evil anyway, then guess what we're going to do? We're going to do whatever we want with our bodies because all that really matters is our spirit. 
And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addressed a group of people apparently still messing with prostitutes as Christians, justifying their behavior. And Paul said, don't you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You've been bought with a price, therefore do what? Glorify God in your body. Your body does matter. This went so far with these people who had this strange view from the Greek uh, 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 dualists and so forth philosophers. It went so far that they began to deny the material nature of the resurrection body. They said Christ, all matters evil, so Christ didn't have a body, therefore he couldn't have raised in a physical body. They denied the physical resurrection of Christ. And many even modern cults and religions teach that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was in some sort of spirit form, but it wasn't a physical resurrection. And Jesus debunks that in Luke 24 when he says, hey, got anything to eat? And they had a piece of broiled fish and some versions say a honeycomb and he ate it in their presence. Aren't you glad in the resurrection we're going to eat? Oh, it makes me so happy. So here's the deal. 1 Corinthians 15 was written to a group of people denying the resurrection and all matter cannot be evil because you and I are going to live forever in resurrection bodies that are going to be physical. How could all matter be evil if we're going to spend eternity in resurrection bodies in a new Jerusalem with a resurrected Christ? All matter cannot be evil. And so what what you see is in the Colossian heresy a thread of teaching that permeated seemingly every area of this church. And when you get one idea wrong, when your theology is wrong, it can cause you to live the wrong way in a lot of areas. So there's certain people who have beliefs about the afterlife and they believe they have to earn their way or they have to beat their body into submission or it really doesn't matter what they do and so their your belief system does affect how you live your doctrine affects how you live out your belief system that's why when you read stuff like this in the new testament don't be shocked that people are called out and corrected the reason is is because this is hugely important what you believe matters because you're going to live it out in your life right All right, all of that is introduction. How do you like that? Now, with very limited time, we're going to tackle the first eight verses. Uh, I guess you could sum up the Colossian heresy. Some people believe it was one system with with a word called syncretism. They were trying to kind of amalgamate multiple belief systems into one, and the closest thing that we have to it today is the modern New Age movement. The modern New Age movement says you can take a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from Hinduism, a little bit from Buddhism, a little bit from this, and a little bit from that, and it doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere. The highest belief in many circles today is sincerity. Are you sincere about what you believe? If if that's true for you, it must be true. No, truth is not determined by how you feel, right? Right? All right, let's go into verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Just quickly, Paul's the author of the letter. Timothy's with him, not the co-author. Timothy, our brother. Paul called him my son. Now he says, Timothy, our brother. It reminds us that as Christians, we are family. This is a family of God. It's not always easy to love family. 
Amen? <laughs> we're all different. We have different perspectives and stuff, but we're called to love each other. That's what the church is. It's a family under the headship of Christ. Some people believe that uh, Timothy is acting as Paul's secretary, writing the letter for him as he speaks it out because Paul had potentially some problems with his eyesight and so forth. The church is not a kind of abstract entity. It's not a building. It's the men and women and children of God. You are the church. No matter where we met today, this would be church because you're the church. Verse 2. He writes to the saints and faithful brethren. The church is saints. The word saint in Haggia is Haggias in Greek and it means sacred. Saints are sacred, holy, pure, set apart exclusively for God. That's what you are. You're a saint. Now, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they have a process by which they saint people. You have to do a miracle and do other certain works. But in the New Testament, you're a saint simply by your belief in Christ and that you're born again and part of his family. That's what makes you a saint. And as J. Vernon McGee used to say, you're either a saint or an ain't. There's no other categories. That's it. We're sitting at a Bible study some years ago with a wonderful Italian a Roman Catholic man who uh, was part of the Christian church and so forth, but he had a lot of Roman Catholic history. And I was teaching on this. It was early in the morning, early 6 a.m. Bible study. Some people were taking coffee intravenously. It was just an ugly scene, drool and stuff. And it wasn't pretty. But anyway, I was teaching through this, and I said, all of you at the table, if you believe in Christ, you're a saint. And uh, this Italian brother of ours looked around and he goes, I just know one thing, ain't none of you saints. <laughs> now, I understood where he was coming from, but this is what the Bible says. The Bible says you're a saint, you're holy to God, you're set apart, you are sacred, you're important to him. He writes to the faithful brethren, Adelphos, in Christ, at Colossae. They are in Christ, that's their identity, but they are at Colossae. You are in Christ if you're a Christian, but you live in, many of you, in Corona, Right? In Christ at Corona. Could we say it that way? You live in, in two spheres. One is your geographic location. Doesn't matter where you are. We could say oh, the church at Corona, but you are in Christ. That's your position before the Lord. No matter where you go, you're in Christ and at Corona. Now, I hope you're not just at Corona. I hope you're in Christ at Corona. Everybody with me? Because if you're only just at Corona, that would be really sad, wouldn't it? Except for the few frozen yogurt places and Mexican restaurants. I mean, what else? <laughs> that was an attempt at humor. Anyway, we'll move on. Grace to you and peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word, Irene, the Greek, from God our Father. We have grace in Christ, and if you are in Christ, it says, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be what? made alive. This is your spiritual standing in Christ. Even in the catacombs, they found slabs to unknown Christians who were killed, and it said, in Christ, and in pace, or in peace. In Christo, and in peace. If you're in Christ, you have peace. If you're not in Christ, I don't know what you have. A pseudo-peace? You must be in Christ to experience this peace. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, praying what? Always for you. Now, by the way, Paul had never seen their face. Colossians 2.1 tells us that um, they had not personally seen his face. He did not plant this church, but he prayed for them always. And this was a solid church. You know who we pray for the most? People we know and people who are in trouble. Would you agree? 
Most of our prayer lists, and we should, we pray for people we know and people who are in trouble. But Paul prayed for a church he had not met yet except for a few of the leaders and prayed for them always. Does that challenge your prayer life? You know, most of the time, I have a tough time praying consistently for people I know, let alone people I don't know. We sometimes don't pray for pastors, for example. We hear on the radio, Charles Stanley, Swindoll, Greg Laurie, go down the list because we assume they're okay. That's a wrong assumption. They are probably the biggest targets that the devil has. So here's a principle. We should pray for those even that we haven't met and cover them in our prayers. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, their faith was in Christ. Remember, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. If your faith is in the wrong thing, your faith can be futile and it can also be destructive. Example, say somebody went to the top of the Empire State Building and believed by faith they could fly. And they said, I really believe today. My faith is really strong today. I believe I can fly. And so they said they mustered up their faith and they did a swan dive off the Empire State Building. Well, there's a greater law. It's called the law of gravity. And the law of gravity is going to win and that person is going to perish because faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. If your faith is misinformed or misdirected, you can be in deep trouble. So it's faith in Christ. And the love which you have for you all for uh, which you have for all. Love flows out of faith. Uh, faith, hope, and love are a combination of 1 Corinthians 13. But the greatest of these is love. Your love for all the saints, not some, but all the saints. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. Chuck Colson was serving a prison sentence after the Watergate scandal. He became a Christian, but he was severely tested. His wife did not understand the whole born-again business. His son was picked up picked up on drug charges and Colson, his world was falling apart and he was despondent. But God met him in his misery and in the prison. A group of Christians in Washington, including Senators Hatfield, Hugh, and I believe you pronounce it Q or Qui, were praying for him. Senator Qui discovered an old law that allowed an innocent man to serve a prison term for another. And he volunteered to serve the remainder of Colson's term. Colson turned him down. But he experienced love for all the saints, and Charles Colson was again refreshed in the reality of his faith. Imagine that. I'll serve the rest of your sentence, brother. This is reminiscent of what Judah did for Benjamin before Joseph, before they knew it was Joseph, and it moved Joseph to tears. And Joseph realized that his brothers had changed because Judah now was willing to take Benjamin's place, and he had to leave the room and go and cry. This is the power of love. This is the power of a life change for the gospel and it manifests itself in hope. It's a hope laid up for us in heaven. Hope is a sure foundation. It's assurance and it's laid up. It's on layaway, you could say in Greek. How many of you remember layaway? Now, years ago, there used to be this store called Gemco. How many of you remember Gemco? All right, this is, this is proving your age. Okay? And you go in and you see these bright new pair of Nike tennis shoes and you say, I have to have them. Lights would be shining on them. Angels would be singing. Your vertical leap could go from three inches to six inches overnight. And you said, I got to have them. But you didn't have the money. You could put the pair of Nikes on layaway. You say, how did that work? Here's what you would say. All right, I really want those, but I can't pay for them now. Put those on layaway, and as I do my paper route, I'll be back in six years to buy those. 
I think they had a limitation on them. But anyway, and, and you go back and once you had the money, isn't this a great thing? Maybe we should do more of this instead of credit, right? And then when you had the money, you go buy your Nikes and they were put on layaway. Well, heaven is, it's on layaway. We have a reservation and the reason we have a reservation is because we're in Christ and Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Praise God. I'm in. He's prepared a place for me. And he's coming again to receive me to himself that where he is there, I may be also. It's my hope. The hope is the anchor of my soul. Are you hopeless or hopeful? Do you have hope in, in true form? Not I hope so, but I know so because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have a reservation in heaven few weeks back, my wife and I went out to dinner on a Saturday night. We rarely do this, but it was a very crowded place. It almost seemed like it was Disneyland. And we were traveling up and down the street, and we were going to go to this restaurant. We had a gift card for this restaurant, so we were, I said, honey, I'm going to call the restaurant really quick. And I said, uh, hey, uh, can I get on the waiting list? Can I get a reservation? How long is the waiting list? He said, two hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> no, just kidding. They didn't say that, but it, but it was pretty long. But I got, a, I got on the list, and, and we got in quicker than a lot of other poor people that were around us. I, I didn't really feel horrible for them. Isn't it nice when you have... <laughs> It's just confession. Have you ever gotten that fast pass at Disneyland? That thing is cool. Because I hate lines. But you get the fast pass, you come back at a certain time, and all the poor, sappy people are in that long line, and you walk by on that fast pass, and it's just like... (laughs) 25 bucks. No, Dad. It's nice to have a reservation. Do you know you have a reservation in heaven? He's already prepared a room for you. There's a place for you. Now, I know we're running a little bit over, but I want to tell you a story I've told before, but it applies. Some years ago, uh, I was playing racquetball with a wonderful man, African-American guy, and we had great, great battles on the racquetball court. And when I would hit a good shot, he would say, now that's a shame. And I'd say, no, that was a good shot. And when he would miss, he would say, now that's a shame. <laughs> but we'd have good competitive matches and, and we'd struggled in the battle in the racquetball court. But when we got out, we'd talk as brothers. And all of a sudden, I didn't see this guy for six months. And I found out through our network of, of friends that his wife had died and he was only in his like early 30s. I was a little bit shocked and I didn't see him. And finally, he showed up back at the gym some months later and I said, brother, I said, I heard what happened. How are you doing? He said, man, Pastor Michael, this has been a rough thing. And he said, I heard something a pastor said once that really comforted my soul. He said, going to heaven, dying and going to heaven is kind of like being born. And I said, how do you mean? He said, well, the pastor said, you know, when you're in your mama's womb, all you know is this kind of this dark water wonderland and you're there and you're comfortable and everything, but you don't realize that at a moment you're going to be born in a flood of light and you don't realize the people on the other side have been waiting for your arrival. In fact, they've been preparing a place for you. And, you know, it might be blue or pink depending on the sex and it might be Dodgers or Angels depending on which baseball team is your preference, Dodgers. But anyway... And so they're preparing a place for you and you're born with a flood of light and, and you have no idea what to expect. And he said, he said, being born, this pastor said, it's kind of like going to heaven. You don't know what to expect, but you don't realize there's people on the other side of them waiting there for you for a long time. They've been anticipating your arrival. You don't know how loved you are until you get there. See, heaven's on layaway for you and me. Christ is the hope and this hope 
is the word of truth in the gospel. Folks, it's true. Verse 5, look at 6. Which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit. It's increasing. The gospel always bears fruit in China and Sudan and places where it looks ugly. It's still bearing fruit. Even as it has been doing and you also since the day you heard of it and you understood the grace of God in truth. There it is again, the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, he's probably their pastor. You can reference chapter 4, verse 12. Our beloved fellow bondservant, one who opens his ears and does his master's bidding, bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, verse 8, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. It's the first eight verses of the book of Colossians. It's glorious stuff, and we have much glory ahead of us as we look at the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Jesus Christ himself, and I'm going to invite the worship team up, said that the world will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love, one for another. Do you know that the world is really going to realize that we belong to Christ when we start loving each other the way God has called us to love? Some of you have pulled your hearts back because you've been hurt. Some of you have been hurt by other Christians and maybe even other churches. Maybe this church, I don't know. And sometimes when we get hurt, we pull our heart back. We don't want to risk loving again. But let me tell you this. Loving is the best thing that you can do. It's the best way to redeem this life because God is love and we know we've passed out of death into life because we, what? Love God's people. You know, here, I could simplify a week going into Easter right now. If, you, if your prayer this week is just simply this, God, my prayer is that you will love people through me. You will help me this week to see the best in people. You will help me to see people the way you see them. You will help me to love people the way you love them. Your life will change. It's not easy because your flesh will fight it, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and as your life is surrendered to Christ, you will love, maybe like you've never loved before. Can I tell you this? Life is short. You don't know what a day is going to bring. I say that, and sometimes I wonder if people looking back at me are really hearing what I'm saying. Life is short. There's no guarantees. But the awesome thing is that we have heaven on layaway. And one day we're going to experience what's called the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And until that day comes, we live with hope. Father, as we uh, sum up this first study in Colossians, I want to thank you for the congregation here at Living Truth. Thank you for their desire to go deep into the things of God. Thank you for their open ears and open hearts. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Egypt. Lord, may you help them to pick up the pieces of their broken lives and move forward in faith. Their church has been, in many ways, broken. But we know you can do a marvelous work despite what's happened. Lord, help us count our blessings today. Let us not complain about silly little things that don't matter. Let us not make it about us, Lord. Let us make it about you and others this week. With your heart and head bowed, I just want to ask you, have you met Christ? Do you know that hope of heaven? 
Do you know if you died tonight, you would be there? Have you received him as both God and Savior? Have you said, and I would encourage you right now, if you've not done this right now, out loud, say, Jesus, save me. I believe you died on that cross for my sins. I believe you rose to defeat death. I believe you're at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm going to trust you right now as my Lord and my Savior. I repent and receive you as my Lord. Maybe you are a prodigal. Maybe you've been off track. And you know you need to get back to Christ's preeminence in your life and sufficiency for your walk and call. Do some business with him right now. He's here and he wants to touch your life. And Father, for this precious congregation, may your living waters, times of refreshing, may they come from your Holy Spirit. May you encourage faith in this room and keep us busy about your business until you come for us or we go to be with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?